0: Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News. I'm your host for these conversations. Mike, more than three months since the COVID-19 pandemic began in the United States, we're seeing cases and deaths starting to decline in some of the hardest hit parts of the country and rise in other parts of the country. And, and U.S. cases overall seem to be plateauing, but not falling. Yet several states are ending stay-at-home orders. Uh, do these trends concern you?
1: Well, thank you, Chris. It's uh, good to be back with you again. Uh, before I begin, though, I, I started a little bit of a tradition here, and I, I I would like to continue that because it's something I think that sets the tone for this entire discussion, and that is dedicating uh, these episodes to, to very special people. And uh, I think um, for personal reasons, I just want to acknowledge today all the parents who have had to, uh, deal with the deaths of their children, many of them adult children with regards to uh, this virus. And, uh, you know, uh, my mother always told me, who is now deceased, that the one hope that she had in her life was that uh, she died before all her kids. And uh, that's the most painful of all to go through in life is to bury one of your children. And uh, this week uh, I dedicate this to all of you parents out there who have lost a child. Whether they be adult or younger, in the last uh, in the in the last few months, due to this. So, moving on to your question, where are we at? Where are we going? What's going on? Um, we are in a transition stage. Uh, what's happening is we are moving away from the large outbreaks that occurred in the Metroplex of New York City, uh, the areas around Chicago, New Orleans, uh, Detroit, Boston. And while there is still tremendous uh, activity there and uh, hospitals are still uh, challenged to provide uh, good care, it surely is a much more controlled situation than it was uh, just a, a month ago. What we're seeing happen is the transition of cases to other areas of the country. And this is following exactly what we talked about on the very first podcast that we did, that this would not be a blue state or a red state. Uh, this would not be a blue county or a red county or a blue city or a red city outbreak. This would be a COVID color outbreak. And we're still in the earliest stages of that. And we can talk more about that in a moment as we get into this. But what's happening is is that uh, the plateau is really not that. The plateau is a, a story of both decreases and increases that are, in a sense, right now, offsetting each other. And uh, with the 1.2 million cases as of today, the 70,000 deaths in the United States as of today. What's happening is we're seeing it in more in rural America, suburban America. We're seeing it in the middle states, not just the coast in terms of activity. And so, uh, this is part of the, what I call the transition period for this pandemic. And we're going to go through a series of transition periods. Uh, and they'll depend in part on where we're at with the waves of uh, cases, and we'll, I know we're going to talk about that in a moment with a report we released released. But I think it's it's really important to understand that um, we are not on the downside of anything. Uh, as I mentioned last time, when uh, when uh, Governor Cuomo made a comment in one of his press briefings that they were on the downside of the mountain, uh, I made a comment to say that uh, I appreciated what he was expressing and the, the sense of that but it was on the downside of the foothill, not the mountain, and that the mountains were still yet to climb. And I think that that's what's happening here. Uh, and we'll come back to that as I said. Uh, also, I just want to comment briefly that yesterday there was a report in the New York Times of a interim analysis done by a researcher, Johns Hopkins University, which then made its way to FEMA, which then made its way to CDC, which then made its way back to the White House. Um, and uh, the estimates at that point, from these mo- this modeling study was that there would be by June about 200,000 new cases a day, and up to 3,000 deaths a day. Uh, as you may recall, the highest number of deaths we had prior to this time, in any one given day, was on the worst day of New York City uh, event uh, just a month ago, and when it was at 2,700 cases. Now, I don't know that those numbers are going to be what will actually happen. But I think what they do is they reflect upon the fact that we have this transition period going on, and this outbreak is not going to go away. As we sit here today talking about reopening uh, and uh, trying to bring back uh, uh, business as we know it, life as we know it, um, all very, very important and legitimate parts of our everyday society, we're up against the fact that uh, these cases are going to continue to occur, and we don't really know what the next pattern will be. Will there be suddenly a, uh, an increase with uh, the reopening of America? Will cases actually level off? And let's, let's maybe cover that more when we get into the a report that we want to talk about in a moment. But the bottom line is, is that uh, uh, there's no one trend here that's taking the cases up and down. It's a whole series of episodes throughout the country that are doing that. And this is true for the whole world. It's not just the United States. We're seeing this worldwide.
0: So let's talk about the recently released Sidrap viewpoint on COVID-19. Uh, it's the first in a series of Sidrap reports that will address different aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The viewpoint looks at the future of the pandemic using past influenza pandemics as a comparative model. So what does the CIDRAP view- viewpoint add to the conversation, Mike? Chris, the, uh, the new series that we've
1: started, COVID-19, the Sidrap viewpoint, really is meant to provide a new type of discussion. About uh, what's happening in terms of the pandemic here in the United States and elsewhere. And we're going to address a number of topics as we go forward, including the scenario issue, which we addressed last week, uh, crisis communication, which we're going to address this week. We're into testing, contact tracing, surveillance, supply chains, epidemiology issues, and really all the uh, issues that are front and center today with this, but hopefully in a very, slightly different way. Um, we want to surely use the uh, best data we have, but also the current reality. And our goal with these is to help planners envision some of the situations that might present themselves later this year or next year, so that they can take key steps now while there's still time. And I think that by itself is a challenging notion because we're up against a number of people who believe that we're just about over the hump. This is going to go away. Uh, we've heard this repeatedly stated by senior officials in this administration that by July we'll be home free. Well, that's not the case. Um, and in this particular uh, uh, first report, uh, the title of it, The Future of the COVID-19 Pandemic Lessons Learned from Pandemic Influenza, which was the first author on this is uh, Dr. Chris Moore, our medical director at CIDRAP. Uh, we're very fortunate to have his uh, co-author is uh, Mark Lipsich, a professor at John, or at uh, Harvard, uh, who we all know and respect, as well as John Berry, uh, the world-famous uh, uh, 1918 historian who has uh, probably done more to understand that pandemic than anyone, and then myself. And what this report was really an attempt to do is to help people understand that we are just at the beginning of this pandemic. This is the second inning of a nine-inning pandemic. And what is going to happen here is this virus is going to keep transmitting through society however it can, wherever it can, and whenever it can. And it's a situation I like to refer to it as viral gravity. It's like physical gravity. It's going to work all the time. This virus is seeking out new people to infect. Well, we're obviously trying to suppress this virus. But in fact, we are only doing at this point, I would have to say in the United States in particular, a uh, uh, maybe a good job in some places, a moderate job in other places, in some places, probably a poor job. But what is this all about? Well, it's all about transmission that will continue until this virus infects at least 60 to 70 percent of the population. or a vaccine comes in, and we can then gain what that 60 to 70 percent, which we refer to as herD immunity. This is not where the virus stops transmitting. It just slows down. There's enough immune rods in the virus transmission reaction to slow it down. And so however this virus can transmit, it will during that time. Now, what does that mean? Well, you have to take a step back and realize we're only at five to 15% of the U.S. population is likely infected with this virus. Um, you know, I saw, we know a study recently out of New York City suggesting it's in the 20s. I think that has to be tempered a little bit by the samples uh, that they took of people who at the time were out and about during uh, the height of the lockdown activity. Uh, but if you look across the board, and I've had an opportunity to see several recent studies that have not yet been published in areas of the United States, and I feel confident that, unfortunately, much of the United States is probably in that 5 to 10% range of having been infected to date. Well, when you think about all the pain and suffering and deaths and economic upheaval, all of the challenges that we've faced already, and we're only at 5 to 15% of the population having been infected to date we have a long ways to go to 60 to 70%. And I don't think people yet have a sense that we have to work hard to prepare for what's coming down the pike. Now, in that regard, what do we mean by coming down the pike? And what this whole report was about was to give you our best guesstimate of what that viral gravity of getting from 5 to 15%, even with the control measures that we're trying to put in place, what that might look like. And so we came up with a series of scenarios that we believe surely could be representative of what we might expect over the months ahead. And again, I want to preempt any uh, uh, long-term suggestion of what's going to happen based on whether we have a vaccine or not. And uh, at this point, I think it's very important to understand that we all are hopeful for a vaccine, but as I keep saying, it's not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. What we're really talking about is if we do get a vaccine, when will it come? How effective it will be, and will there be long-term or short-term immunity only? Even a few months will help us slow this thing down. The same thing is true when I talk about new infections. We still have a challenge on our hands to understand: Are these people really protected, or are they not? If they are protected, for how long with post-infection immunity? But the three scenarios that we laid out: one was based on what happens if we just continue to see these kind of peaks and valleys that we're seeing right now where cases go up in some areas and they come down, they go up and they come down and they overlap in geographic areas. So maybe uh, in a few months it's not Northern Italy, it's Southern Italy. Maybe it's not New York, but maybe it's Denver. Uh, Where will we see these outbreaks pick up again and when will we see them uh, decrease? So that's one way where it's not one big peak, but it's a series of this. And again, we have to add that in because uh, we can't use uh, influenza as the absolute model. It likely is a good model for this, but we don't know that for fact. And so in that regard, um, we've picked this one because it surely isn't been a influenza model pattern seen before. The second one we picked was the fall peak. Now this is based on influenza epidemiology and what we know about the past eight influenza pandemics dating back 250 years. And in fact, we actually have 10 such pandemics, but eight for which we actually have the best data. And in this case, we have uh, almost right now playing out the kind of, of activity we might have expected to see with an influenza pandemic, where in the spring wave of 1918, there, and this was actually true, and even in the spring wave of 2009 with H1N1, there was activity that was pretty substantial in some cities. New York and Chicago in 1918 got hit hard in the spring uh, uh, wave. But cities like Minneapolis and Detroit, cities like Baltimore, Philadelphia, Boston did not. Then when the fall wave came, there was this big peak, very substantial activity that took over, much larger than any of the spring peaks. And that's where the bulk of the uh, number of cases and deaths occurred in ni- the 1918-1920 pandemic. Now, there were waves after that that continued to transmit, but the vast majority of the activity was there. That would equate now for us, if this is at all a realistic possibility, of a major peak sometime later this summer, uh, early fall that could last for weeks and weeks and could be dramatic. Now, the third scenario that we put together was one where, again, more of a coronavirus novel knockoff scenario of one where we have our biggest peak now what we've seen in, in around the world, and we're seeing now. We're seeing major activity in Africa. Uh, we're seeing Af- activity in Central and South America. Uh, and we get over this next few months with this big peak. And then we just continue to have kind of low level, ongoing, ongoing, ongoing peaks. And we don't know that that's not the case. That's what we kind of call the slow burn situation. But these will keep lasting for many months and potentially years depending on what happens with vaccine, and whether we can get that to the populations of the world in time to actually beat the 60 to 70% herd immunity number. And again, I want to emphasize that doesn't mean it's the end of the pandemic. It means that it's just slowing it down. So this report surely is meant to challenge. But I feel very confident that what we've laid out here is exactly what will happen. I can't tell you for certain which of these scenarios or hybrids of these scenarios will happen, but I can tell you as certainly as I know that this virus will not stop transmitting. It will not stop doing what it's doing. It will not stop killing until we as a population have either been uh, rendered immune by infection or by vaccine. And so that's what we have to plan for. And that's what I worry desperately right now about the planning around the world. I don't see this plan. I see the planning we have is to get through this next cycle, i.e. what we're in right now. And for those who are very concerned about the business side of the world, which are many, including people who are also concerned very, very significantly about COVID-19, they have to see this because one of the things we have to do is start planning for how do we not only, as I've said in the past, not just learning to die with this virus. And I say learning in a very painful way healthcare workers having to watch loved ones of family members staff to stay outside the hospital or the nursing home and only be able to view a loved one by a, a video camera uh, or an iPhone so that they can be there when they die or uh, the kinds of pain of watching family members uh, who who unfortunately fall victim to this that's that's the dying part but we also have to learn how to live with this virus we have to figure out we can't lock down our world 18 or 24 months and expect society to survive as we know it. And we can't let this go willy-nilly. And one of the things we're working on now and continue to work on is how do we basically thread the rope through the needle to get us to that middle point where we're releasing more and more people in in society uh, that are at low risk from developing this infection uh, and having a serious outcome or developing this infection and dying. And so this is the challenge we have. But we hope that this first report really serves as a standard to say, wake up, world. This pandemic is not going to be done in July. And if you're going to believe that, you know, you will be a victim far beyond what we would have to be uh, when it comes to the fall and next year, planning how we're going to respond to this situation.
0: So, Mike, why uh, why look at influenza pandemics rather than uh, previous coronaviruses like SARS or MERS? Yeah, that's a,
1: a really important consideration. SARS and MERS, which were the initial models that many of us thought that Wuhan was all about, is actually a very different kind of disease. I've had the opportunity to work on both of those in the 2003 SARS uh, epidemic. Uh, that started in China and became a worldwide epidemic in the sense that it wasn't a pandemic because it wasn't everywhere, but it surely was in a number of places. And then, of course, MERS, which has been uh, largely uh, a, a problem on the Arabian Peninsula with occasional travelers taking it to some other location. In each of those instances with these viruses, which they, by the way, are highly infectious too, and they also uh, are capable of producing severe disease and death, but they have one thing that's very different about them that this current coronavirus has. And that is that the infectiousness doesn't really begin until the fifth or sixth day of illness. And we learned uh, quickly with SARS and was that was translated to the MERS work that if we could identify patients in their earliest days of illness and get them in isolation, we could drive down that r naught to zero, meaning that they didn't transmit to anybody. Um, and that was an important uh, lesson learned in the SARS situation. Also, we learned that with SARS, we had to get rid of the animal population that was the reservoir for this, and we did that. We got rid of palm civets among other animals in the markets of the Guangdong province, and so humans stopped getting pinged by the virus. That's not happened with MERS. Uh, MERS is a situation where we have about 1.7 million dromedaries on the uh, Arabian Peninsula. These camels are a constant reservoir source for this virus. And unlike palm civets, we're not going to put camels down uh, for for disease prevention reasons. So humans continue to get pinged with the virus in the Arabian Peninsula. And we keep seeing cases year after year after year. Uh, and uh, the most important development there, however, is in recognizing this epidemiology. When cases now occur, they are quickly isolated, again, preventing human-to-human transmission and just having to deal with the constant pressure of the of the uh, um, virus coming from the camels. In terms of the other coronaviruses, the cold-causing coronavirus, the HKU1 uh, pneumonia virus, these are seasonal viruses. They have never uh, been a major public health challenge. Uh, we don't really also see these as being a good model for this virus. So this virus has inherited some of the work car- characteristics of SARS and MERS, and that we know we have superspreading spreading events. Uh, unlike MERS or SARS, it, however, is highly infectious in the days before onset of symptoms or potentially in asymptomatic individuals. So in some ways, it, it's taken the worst of what could be the worst for a virus. And uh, even even to the extent that its infectiousness, I think, as far exceeds that of influenza, uh, that, that's a real challenge for us.
0: Mike, you uh, gave out the uh, the email address for listeners to send in questions uh, on the last episode. We've gotten a ton of responses. Um, We've got a couple of emails about the viewpoint. Uh, and one was from Marco, uh, who asks, uh, is it correct that the mechanisms behind the second waves of the influenza pandemics are poorly understood? And how does this affect our predictions regarding a possible second wave for COVID-19? And then uh, an email from Paul who wants to know about the diminished severity you're predicting after that 18 to 24-month period.
1: Yes, uh, really important questions. And um, thank you to both Marco and Paul. Uh, First of all, uh, we have to acknowledge what little we do know about influenza viruses today and their epidemiology. When I say that, there are people who have spent their entire careers. I've spent the best part of my career working in influenza. And I have said with uh, absolute honesty, I think I know less about influenza today than I did 10 years ago. Because the more we learn, the more challenged we are. But one of the areas that um, I think is a really important consideration uh, as we look at this current pandemic is, again, I mentioned in 1918. We saw it again in 2009 with H1N1. We have this initial wave, and it comes, and it goes away. And we've never, in either of the pandemics, including also the 1957 and 68 pandemics, did anything to make that wave go away. It just went away. Uh, I wonder what we are going to see with this virus, whether or not it too will, in a sense, go away. Now, what that means is it's still in our communities. It's still out there lurking somewhere. But it by itself, the case numbers dropped precipitously. Then all of a sudden, uh, in the second wave, we see, you know, months later, it coming back with a vengeance. And we don't understand that. You know, it's not it can't be attributed to season because as I pointed out before, these pandemics that we've had uh, over the course of the last 250 years have happened in all four seasons where they started. And in each instance, this major wave was about six months later. Uh, and so it didn't matter with regard to season. I mean, think about 2009, which is most recent. That original peak occurred in mid-March to early May in North America. It then went away. We didn't see almost any major flu activity through most of the summer until mid to late August. And then it picked up again and peaked out literally late September, early October, long before vaccine arrived. Didn't have an impact. In neither of those instances did we social distancing. We didn't recommend, you know, people stop that. We surely had schools already closed down for the summer. Uh, and, uh, uh beyond that, that was about it. And yet it went away. So I think this is a really important observation because we could actually see if there's similarities between this virus and influenza changes in the epidemiology of the disease in our communities. And we might attribute what that has, what that means is that we did something. I'm not sure. I have no doubt in my mind that the major efforts we've taken to, quote, unquote, flatten the curve over this current peak of cases in the United States did have an impact. I'm certain of that. I think New York would have gone over what I call the case clip, that, that's that place where you no longer can provide uh, intensive care uh, for patients because you don't have any space or personnel or equipment to do it. Um, that is when you really see uh, things go to hell in a handbasket. Um, so I think that's happened. But at the same time, we also have to be humble enough to say, if this suddenly goes away right now, and we have a few months of quiet, that will scare me more than if we continue to see cases ongoing. And I say that because that might mean, well, we do have a peak coming. And I think that peak is what's going to define us. And in our report, We were very clear about the fact that we had to prepare for that. That was the worst case scenario. When we suddenly are challenged across the world for all these resources and for this medical care, that's when the business community will really know we have a pandemic. And I don't think that they really sense this yet. I think they think that we've already gotten through everything. And that's the concern we have. Some people will tell you this is scaremongering. It isn't. It's just trying to tell you. I feel a kind of like a uh, a hurricane weather forecaster, just saying, you know, we got the lowest low-pressure system we've ever seen. Uh, we're 500 miles off of shore, and we've got 90-degree water between there and shore. This is what I think is going to happen. And I think that we'll find out with this. In terms of the question that Paul asked, what will happen with it, we don't know. Again, we're in uncharted territory. Will this become a seasonal flu, uh, flu virus-like scenario where we see uh, the virus beginning to uh, uh, sink in, you might say, with seasons. Good, good point. One of the things that will be critical here is what happens with immunity. Can we get durable immunity with infection? Can we get durable immunity with vaccination? And if we can't, what does that mean? Uh, at this point, I have no reason because of it as a coronavirus that we're going to see an attenuation of the infection. Now, grant you, we don't have human-to-human transmission with MERS viruses, but we've seen no evidence to suggest that MERS viruses have been reduced at all in their pathogenesis or virulence, the ability to cause disease or serious disease over the course, basically, uh, since 2012 when it first emerged. So I don't know that we have any reason to think that this virus would necessarily change, much like we have seen flu viruses, where we tend to see them basically become more muted, not as likely to cause serious disease as they did during the pandemic, still causing serious seasonal disease, just not as much as the pandemic, uh, and then become seasonal. So I think, uh, thank you, Marco and Paul. Uh, you're now at the very edge of any kind of knowledge that I have, and I think most of us in terms of what's going to happen.
0: The next SIDRAP uh, viewpoint will be on the crisis communications. Can you give us a bit of a sneak peek at that report, Mike?
1: Well, again, in keeping with the spirit of what I shared earlier, we want these reports to represent a really uh, cutting-edge signal uh, statements that are straight talk and right to the heart of the issues we need to deal with. And uh, for years, I have been a student of two people who I believe represent the very, very best expertise in the area of crisis communication, namely is... Uh, uh, Peter Sandman, uh, who is well known uh, for his work uh, as a consultant around the world, and Jody Lennard, a former advisor to the World Health Organization and Outbreak Communication. And they've provided leaders around the world for decades uh, the best and expert advice about how to communicate during a crisis. And uh, in this report, I think people will actually take away a lot of information. Uh, the report highlights the the uh, real world examples of effective and poor COVID-19 messaging and includes recommendations based on on six specific principles about how to deliver messages to the public, what what you need to do. Um, if one looks at those principles, I think I just very briefly summarize them and I hope people go in and look at the report. But first of all, don't over reassure. If I hear one comment over and over again about what I say, people are saying, you can't say that you're going to scare people. You know, and I, and I keep saying, you know, I have never, ever thought of it like that. I don't think my job is to scare people out of their wits and scare them into their wits. And, and Peter and Jody come across very clear and compelling in the fact that we get ourselves in much more trouble by over reassuring people, not, not laying out the facts straight. And as I've said to you on multiple occasions, I promise you as much straight talk on these podcasts or what we do at SIDRAP as possible. Responsible conversation, but straight. The second thing is proclaim uncertainty. Well, I just demonstrated that one because I just got done telling you how little we know in so many ways. But that's really important. Anyone who has all the facts, who has all the answers, I would not trust them with even a simple answer to a simple question. You know, validate emotions. Your audience is in your own. You know, I have to tell you, the last couple of weeks, I have sensed more than ever how many reporters who I deal with where part of the conversation is just about them trying to deal with their fears and their concerns as much as it is about the facts of the moment. And, you know, we are foolish if we don't understand this validating of emotions. And I say that about the people who right now are really adamantly opposed to much of what's going on in terms of of uh, well, the quote-unquote uh, lockdown or uh, released into the public. And and we have to validate that. You know, I have a good friend who's losing his job. Not just that job, but it's his business, a one-man business. I have another friend who has a major business who's invested 15 years in and may lose that. We have to validate those emotions. So I think that that's a, that's a key piece of what they'll talk about. We have to give people things to do. One of the things that uh, we're all struggling with is what can I tell people to do? And they want that information. They need that information. And so we want to tell them reasonable and rightful things to do. Admit and apologize for errors. You know, we're all going to mess up. We all are. You know, I, I try very hard to keep my foot out of my mouth. Uh, but when you do enough of these interviews and you do enough of these podcasts, you know, you're bound to say something that you didn't mean to say. And then you go, oops, did it come out like that? Apologize. If you make a mistake, in, in practice, apologize and say, this is what I've learned from it. And I must say that some of the best learning lessons of my career have been my mistakes and learning from them. Uh, and then finally, share dilemmas. Uh, they talk all about is we do have challenges. And and I think that uh, as as they have said in one line of the report is assurance is the most common mistake officials make when crisis strikes. And they certainly have made that mistake about COVID-19. Peter makes that very clear. He also uh I think really his home the fact that during crisis communication it's very important that you have this consistency in who and what you are and what you're trying to share with people and that they can come to trust us as a steady product and uh, you know this gets back to and harkens to the discussion we had about uh, uh you know if I could if I could pick one public health tool in addition to a vaccine right now I would pick FDR and Churchill. You know, we need that leadership so badly right now. We need people that can both tell us how bad it's going to be, but what we're going to do about it and remind people we're going to get through it. It's just a matter of how we do it. And I think that uh, I urge everyone to 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 listen to this or, or to, to take a look at it, I should say, uh, on our website. I think you'll find uh, it very, very helpful in terms of of communication. And then next week, we're going to come out with one on testing and uh, update the challenges on that. Uh,
0: getting back to the, the epidemiology of the pandemic, Mike, um, as we've discussed on the podcast previously, uh, nursing homes and long-term care facilities uh, are, are, have been among the hardest hit uh, by the coronavirus. Uh, according to a Washington Post analysis, one in six facilities nationwide have a confirmed case in residents or staff. So uh, when, you, when you look out at the, the next 18 to 24 months, are these congregate care facilities going to continue to be hotspots, or, or do you see that epidemiology changing?
1: Well, we have to understand that uh, the long-term picture of this pandemic is going to go through different stages, different flavors. What we're seeing right now with these outbreaks and these facilities you just mentioned are really what I would call the canary in the mine. And this is going to change. And it will have an impact because some people have come to characterize this pandemic by this. I like to think of this as the, as the congregate care, congregate work location, congregate lifestyle, where we have many people in a sense come together in close quarters, some who will have increased risk of having serious disease uh, and dying. But the bottom line message is here, if you only have One half of one percent of your population infected at any one time in the community. It's one out of two hundred. If I'm one of the two hundred visitors to that nursing home, or I'm the one of the two hundred employees that works at that nursing home, I'm one of the two hundred guards that go to work at a prison. I'm one of the two hundred visitors that come to that prison. I'm one of two hundred people that work in a meat processing plant in close quarters, shoulder to shoulder. I'm one of hundreds of people that may be on a cruise ship. I'm one of those people who lives in a homeless shelter. And in every instance, that is a match going into a gas can. So suddenly this one half or 1% becomes a 50 or a 60% because it spreads quickly in those areas. These locations have dominated the number of serious illnesses and deaths in many states that is going to change. Eventually, what will happen is we will see literally the whole concept of herd immunity develop here because we've seen such dynamic transmission. Then just like I talked about the transition of the deaths occurring earlier in this conversation with what's happening in some of the large urban areas, and now we're seeing it spread out, the same thing is going to happen here. In a few months, it wouldn't surprise me if these... uh, various congregate locations make up a small percentage of serious illnesses and deaths. In a sense, the virus will have literally burned through these populations. That though, however, still gets us just a few more percent of people. We still have at that point, anywhere from 40 to 50% of the population that still needs to be infected to get to that magic 60 to 70% herd immunity. And those aren't going to be Older people living in long term care or prisoners or meat packers or homeless people, they're going to be just like everybody else in our society, wherever they live. And I think that that's an important message because right now I see this, out, this whole pandemic being falsely characterized as well as it's, it's just a, a situation where a lot of older people are dying. And that dismissal is painful, particularly when it's one of your loved ones. And I happen to have a very close friend right now whose both parents are literally in critical condition in a nursing home uh, with COVID. And it's a situation where we have to anticipate that because that's what is going to happen. So mark my word, come back here, and I'll do another one of these in a few months. And these congregate locations With the minus cruise ships, we'll have to see what they do because Carnival just announced they're going to go failing back in August, which I think will be a challenge. But these other ones are largely going to have a situation where, unfortunately, though so many of them will be infected. These cases clearly do represent, in some instances at least, the highest risk people for also having serious disease and dying, such as in long-term care. The number of deaths, I think, will, will grow dramatically. Even though we're going to be infecting many, many more younger people, people who have uh, uh, underlying health uh, conditions that are going to predispose them, including obesity, renal disease, uh, heart disease, the rates will be much lower per population, possibly five-fold lower, ten-fold lower. We don't know, but I can tell you the number of these people are so much greater than the smaller populations in each of these different groups here. I mean, we're talking about meatpacking plants right now. We have 4,900 workers in 115 meatpacking plants who have been infected, 20 deaths. We've had 2,066 COVID cases in federal inmates, 41 deaths. You know, we've had uh, in long-term care, 91,000 cases in 33 states with more than 16,000 deaths. When you add those numbers up, they're small compared to the 330 million people who live in the United States. And so overall, the deaths will go up, even though the risk of dying when getting COVID is going to decrease in those populations. Uh,
0: We have another listener email, uh, this one from Christian, who asks, uh, what are your thoughts on colleges opening again in the fall? Let me say that uh, we have to move forward. We can't look
1: back and we can't be frightened to move into the future. But we have to be smart. We have to be wise. And that means that we have to take into consideration any number of possibilities that could happen with this virus this virus will be with us in the summer. It'll be with us in the fall. It'll be with us next winter. So if I'm planning for higher education or for that matter, high schools, grade schools, we have to keep that in mind. And so my sense is go straight forward ahead, plan for it. But you're going to have to be mindful what that means. And actually, there's a number of scenarios that are playing out right now in higher education. I've been advising Uh, one of the major associations for college presidents on this issue, as well as being on the board of regents of a college, Luther College of Decorah, Iowa, plus being a member of the University of Minnesota faculty advising the president. And there are at least 15 different scenarios we've identified for the fall, where one, which some have just, I think, uh, college presidents have used far more bravado than they should, where they're just going to go back to normal. I think that denies the reality of what this virus could do. Maybe we won't have a peak, but even if we don't have a peak, there'll still be virus activity. Some are talking about a late start as a possibility to see if that peak's going to happen. Others are trying to move the fall to the spring. We have some are talking about a first year intensives where basically your freshmen come in. Other students are juniors, uh, sophomores, juniors, and seniors continue to learn remotely. Uh, Some people have talked about graduate students only. Some have dealt with the structured gap year where how basically uh, they have uh, extensive studies outside of the uh, campus. Others have done targeted curriculums where they want in the fall, they reduce the number of courses being offered to limit on campus density and to prioritize resources. Others have, have split curriculums, how they're going to try to refocus into much smaller, tighter units. And that along with block plans would give them, well, we can get three or four weeks in that will give credit and if something happens, uh, then we can quickly move out of that to another area. Um, there are surely pro- programs around students and residents uh, and low residency models, which I think will be the case. Uh, and, and I could go on, but colleges and universities are clearly looking at a whole new reality, a new normal. Um, and it's interesting because in one of the conference calls where I was advising a number of major senior college presidents, Um it was uh, a question was asked and it was uh, really thoughtful in the way that it was asked because it was not about tell me what to do. Tell me what's going to happen and then it's my job to figure out what to do. And I realized that is one of the challenges we can't address. I wish I could. I wish I could tell you which of those three scenarios or hybrids of those three scenarios were going to happen. I don't know. I wish I could tell business people that. I wish I could tell healthcare providers that. We can't. So unfortunately, it's all about situational awareness. We may have to stop in a dime and give back nine cents change in some of our decisions where we get started, we're able to get something done and accomplished, but then we see the virus come back in a significant way, and we're going to have to relook at that. We have to look at colleges and universities as some ways the ultimate mixing vessel between those populations that are young, that are the healthiest, that are the ones that very well could uh, be in our communities and and sustain the least number of serious illnesses or deaths. But on the other hand, we have faculty, we have staff, we have administrators. How do they do that? And I think we're at a point right now where this is where the creative thinking needs to come in. But I can't urge enough, don't give into this damn virus. Don't give into it. Find the ways to go ahead, move forward, take care of our students, take care of our faculty and staff, And take care of education in a way that says, you know, it's like a chess match. You put this one up as a virus, we'll put this one up. And I think that's the message we need to get out, is that we're going to find creative ways to deal with this. And I think that will be a very, very important uh, point that will help us to move forward. And uh, in that regard, I think, will also be another motivating factor of trying to, in a sense, outsmart this virus come the fall. Let me just say one last thing about SPAC. Sports came up over and over again about what to do, obviously money maker. I have good news, I think we all talk about Korea and how well they've done on issues around control. We'll see what happens here, but Korea inaugurated their season, their baseball season this week. No one in the stands, all televised, and I understand it is the first games were the most watched television shows in the history of Korea. Um, people are anxious and hungry for that. So they have the young players out there. Surely they had a smattering of older coaches, et cetera. But Korea is back with baseball. And I think that's the kind of creativity you want to
0: see. Uh, well, Mike, I, I, for one, am very excited that baseball is back, and I'm sure a lot of people are. But uh, do you have any uh, parting words for us? I, I do.
1: Uh, and I've thought about this a lot. And, uh, you know, these podcasts are free. So I hope everyone enjoys them. But I'm going to make a suggestion that uh, you owe me. And what you owe me is to pay it forward in an act of kindness this week. I have mentioned this in previous ones, but I think everybody needs to be reminded right now, if there was ever a time for us to be kind, it's now. And so I'm going to make this as a requirement. It's an honor system. But you're not allowed to listen to the next podcast until you have uh, committed with with open arms and and excitement, an act of kindness. So I would leave you with that, uh, that thought and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you in the future. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Dr. Osterholm, and thanks for listening to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you can keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu.